Hi folks, you're listening to a special bonus episode of Deep Cut. I'm Eli Sands. In our most recent episode, Ben, Wilson, and I discussed two movies by the documentary director Marlon Riggs. As I was preparing for that episode, I was lucky enough to speak with documentary editor and director Christiane Badgley. She edited a number of Riggs' films and notably helped complete his final film, Black is Black Ain't, after Riggs' passing during production. You're about to hear the conversation that she and I had about her work with Riggs. I learned a lot from what she told me, and I'm excited for you to hear. I'll also add that this conversation has been lightly edited for length. Let's take a listen. First of all, thank you so much for being here with me today for this conversation. It's really wonderful to be able to speak with one of Marlon's collaborators, especially someone who worked on editing with him because so much of his style was formed in the edit. Mm -hmm. So you told me that you edited on Tongues Untied, and then you were his editor as well for two of his shorter films, Affirmations and Anthem, and then you edited and co-directed and really helped complete Black is Black Ain't. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Great. Backing up a little bit. You studied international economics and politics, and then you wound up in San Francisco working on documentaries. What drew you to documentary? I started graduate school at LSE. I realized that I didn't want to work for the State Department or international government organizations. Although I was very interested in international issues, I felt I needed to go in another direction. So I dropped out of LSE. I applied to graduate school at UC Berkeley. I started the journalism program. From the beginning, I wanted to be in the television program, which led to documentary film because I was interested in documentary film. And the reason I was interested in documentary film is because I actually wasn't much of a cinema buff. I mean, I loved film, but I had, didn't really think of myself as someone who wanted to be a filmmaker. I did a lot of fine arts. So I thought, well, how can I combine my interest in international affairs and politics with my artistic side? And I thought, well, documentary might be a good way to do that. What were some of those fine arts that you had experience with before going into documentary? Well, I did some drawing and painting, a little bit of photography, but what I mainly did was ceramics. So I really had no background in documentary film at all. (laughs) And I really started film, period, um, when I was at UC Berkeley. And that's also where I met Marlon. He had been a student. He had gone through the documentary program, which was run by a former ABC documentary producer named Andrew Stern. And I followed Marlon, I don't know, a couple years later. I went through the two years and then I was working on my master's thesis project with another student, Bob Paris, who also ended up collaborating with Marlon. Anyway, I was working on my master's thesis, and at that time, Marlon Riggs was hired to teach in the department. He had just made his first film, Ethnic Notions, and he started teaching. And because I was constantly around editing my film with Bob, we got to know Marlon, and Marlon liked some of the editing that I was doing on the thesis film and actually gave me an opportunity to do some editing with him on what turned out to be Tongues Untied. So that is how we first started working together. It was just um, a great 
coincidence that I was finishing my film while he started teaching and he was able to see what I was doing, liked it and gave me a chance to do something with him. And that's just something that for me was always really important about Marlon. He was so into working with young people, helping young people get a start, giving them opportunities. And of course, at that time, he was also quite young. I mean, he was only a couple of years older than I was, but he just had this very open, inclusive way of working with people. He was, he was a wonderful person. I really feel like that's reflected in his movies. To, to back up for one second, you mentioned that he saw things in your editing that he liked and wanted to bring you on to work on Tongues Untied. What were some of the things that you were doing when you were editing your own short that you think drew him to your work? Well, our thesis documentary, which ended up actually being 45 minutes long, which is one reason it took so long to finish. <laughs> one of the things that I was doing with the editing was playing around with slow motion, dissolves, doing some text on screen. Also, there were some sections in the film where there were no images. So I did some paintings that we used to make up for the fact that there was no imagery for sections of a film that were historic and, and there weren't any archival materials available. Anyway, he just saw this and thought it was interesting and liked the idea that I was fooling around with images and doing something. In terms of experimental film, it wasn't experimental at all. But in terms <laughs> of kind of standard documentary practice at that moment in time, it was fairly unusual. So I think he just thought that was interesting and thought it would be nice to try bringing me on to work with him on Tongue Sentai. That really adds up and makes a lot of sense. You know, you talk about your fine arts background and that it doesn't necessarily tie into documentary, but one of the approaches that Riggs seemed to have was that he brought all these different artistic practices like dance into his own work and of course spoken word and poetry. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that he would see you bringing other artistic practices from your life into your work and be drawn to that and to bring you on as a collaborator. That makes perfect sense to me. So you started working with him on Tongues Untied. I'm curious to hear some about Riggs's process and how he worked with you as an editor. What was the workflow like? When I worked with him on Tongues Untied, I wasn't the primary editor. He actually was the main editor on the film. So I mm -hmm. would be probably what you'd call a second editor. What he did is he just had sections of the film where he said he had an idea, wanted to talk about something. Did I have some thoughts about what we might be able to do? I was free to try things. You know, there was a section where there's a heartbeat. There's images that are cut to that. That was one of the things where I was just able to play. And if he liked what I was doing, he incorporated it. It was great. With Tongues Untied, I didn't have any role on the overall structure of the film. I was involved with working on sequences and trying to make them sing, create something kind of visually interesting and, and rhythmically interesting to fit in with what he was trying to say. It was a lot of fun. One of the really wonderful things about Tongues Untied is that there are those sections or chapters that have very distinct moods, but flow really nicely and have that nice overall structure. Again, that sort of adds up that 
it was sort of taken a section at a time. And would you say that you sort of were building one coherent piece at a time? Or did Marlon have a superstructure plan? Like there's going to be the section where he talks about his youth and the section where he talks about uh, snapping. Or did that sort of get found along the way as the film was being cut together? I think it was a little bit of both. Tongues and Tide was a very interesting film on so many levels. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Marlon had started his career and he made Ethnic Notions, which is a very important film, a film that you can still watch today. It holds up. It's as strong as it was when he made it. Same for color adjustment. Yes. Both films, exceptionally well-researched, well-made, classic documentaries in their form. Right. What happened was when Marlon first was diagnosed with AIDS, that's when he started working on Tongues and Tide. And I think that what happened was he was just suddenly felt this urgency to um, talk about something that was much more personal, something he had to get out. And he had no reason not to go for it and be as creative as he could be. So I think that when he was working on Tongues and Tide, already just the act of starting to work on this project in this way was already a huge break from his previous work. And I think as he moved forward, he just kept experimenting. So he did have an overarching idea of the story he wanted to tell and the ideas he wanted to get across. But he and I, and I think everyone else who was involved along the way, just kept pushing, pushing, experimenting, experimenting, and you know, ended up with Tongues Untied. It sounds to me like it's really a balance of, and again, I think this is reflected in the works themselves, a mix of inspiration and information from his own personal life and contributions of really, it looks like a family of collaborators from, you know, watching Karen Everett's documentary about his life. It really seems like, especially around Black is Black Ain't, that you and Bob Paris and Nicole Atkinson were kind of like his family of collaborators or an extension of his brain to help push it in new directions, as you say. Would you say that that's sort of a correct assessment that it kind of comes from him and he builds it out with his collaborators? Yes, I think that's the case. I think also Marlon, you know, was a great humanist. He was Mm. brilliant. He was wonderful. He was also a huge fan of poetry. His film work in Tongues Untied and, and later, but, you know, especially Tongues Untied, was also really influenced by the poet's that he was reading, the Black gay poets, and even some of the Black gay artists like Rupert Kinnard. I just mentioned him because I'm now working on this film about gay and lesbian comics. And Rupert, one of the people featured in the film, was someone who collaborated with Marlon as well, doing some drawings for Tongues Untied. Yeah, so Marlon just, he was a sponge. He just took in information from everywhere. He took in ideas. And then he was generous with the people he worked with. I think he was fully confident. You know, I think sometimes when people, when people are very confident, when they know who they are, they know what they want to say, then they're more able to benefit from other people who want to work with them because they don't fear that, you know, other people are going to try to take over their work or have too much influence. Marlon was very confident. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Like I said, tongues untied and, and, and the work that he did until the end of his life, you know, he was on a mission and nothing was going to stop him and anything that could help him was great. I love that. That's, <laughs> that's really lovely. Yeah. I mean, you really get a sense of urgency, especially in Black is Black Ain't. I think he even says, I have to put it all on the table now and have to say what I want to say. Mm. 
Black is Black Ink in particular is a really interesting companion to Tongues Untied. It has some stylistic similarities, but it also is broader in what mm-hmm. it wants to do in uniting more people. Tongues Untied is speaking more directly to uh, Black gay audience. Mm-hmm. The most electric and exciting film premiere I've ever been at in my life was the premiere of Tongues Untied, which mm-hmm. actually wasn't the premiere. I believe it first screened in Los Angeles at a festival that I didn't attend, but I did attend its first screening in San Francisco at the Roxy Theater. And the, the cinema was packed, a standing room only. There were people in the aisles against the back <laughs> wall. And um, I'd never been at a film screening like it. I mean, people were just shouting, laughing, applauding, preaching. You know, it was amazing. It was like, here was this film where so many people were seeing themselves for the first time in this positive light in a film. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. The film, though, interestingly enough, I had people for years and years who would come up to me and and talk to me about the film. And they would say, you know, this film spoke to me. And these are people who aren't necessarily Black, aren't necessarily gay, but they felt, for whatever reason, this idea of having a story that you haven't been able to tell, you know, needing to have your, your existence validated was something that they were, they could relate to. So that was really amazing for me. Last year, when I was in New York at the screening at um, BAM. BAM is the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which held a retrospective of Riggs's work in February 2019. The screening of Tongues Untied, what was interesting is that most of the people in the audience had never seen the film. And there were lots of people in the audience who were, I mean, there were a lot of young black gay people in the audience, but there were also a lot of older people, not black, not gay. I mean, it was, it was kind of quite a diverse audience. But in any case, again, what was so amazing was that it speaks to everyone. Marlon had this incredible gift because he's such a universalist, such a humanist, as I said. He could take something very, very particular, you know, his particular story of being a black gay man growing up in the South, etc. He had a way of communicating that story where he would bring other people in rather than shutting other people out. And, and that's such a gift. I, I can't think of too many filmmakers who had that ability. In terms of how that influenced him in his later work, I think it just gave him energy and drive to continue and to actually continue working in this vein of doing more personal work. This is also the takeaway I get from a lot of his movies, too, especially in Black is Black Ain't, where it's made pretty explicit. The goal to bring as much of an audience together as possible and end any sort of gatekeeping to communities and really unite people in a very holistic, earnest sense, really across intersectional boundaries as well. I'd be curious to hear your take on how his directorial and editorial style contribute to that goal of bringing the audience together? Like, what is it about the energy of his movies that does that so effectively and makes the specificity of his life universal to audiences? Part of it is his, his writing, you know, which is a reflection of, of his persona. It's a reflection of this humanism, you know, that I mentioned. So I think his own writing, you know, his, his, com- his comment, his voice in his films, the people he chooses to put in his films, 
who he chooses to feature in his films. He, he also seeks, well, Black is Black, I think there's a wide variety of people who talk, but he does seek out people who, who have a similar worldview to his, to his own worldview. And that also has this unifying effect. He loved music, dance, popular arts, like I mentioned, you know, drawings, comics. That also, I think, too, helps, you know, people come around, listen. I mean, how can you, if you're enjoying listening to the music, if you're following along with the beat, you know, you're just more there, present to hear the message. Those elements all come together to help him get across what he's trying to say. There's such a joy in the eclectic tastes of those movies. And I think that also goes back to the kind of idea that you said that Marlon was a sponge. Were there any moments when you had a different approach to a creative decision or a thematic idea? And how did you work through that? This question's a little bit difficult. I mean, when Marlon was around, anytime we had a disagreement or we didn't see eye to eye on something, we would just talk about it and then we'd find a solution. Black is Black Gate was quite unusual because he died months before the film was completed. Then what I did before he died is that he was in the hospital and I decided that I would go into the hospital and I would film him. And I just interviewed him for a few hours with a camera. And I was interviewing him because I wanted to know everything that he wanted to say in the film. I wanted to know what was his position on everything, what was the tone he wanted for each section, what were, you know, what were the issues he wanted to cover, the tone, the message. So I, I was doing the interview partially for myself for gathering information that would allow me to finish the film because unfortunately it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to finish the film. He was very ill. I also did the interview because I wanted to record his voice um, because I felt like I would be able to use some of that recording for narration in the film. I knew he wanted to do narration in the film, but he was not well enough to go into a studio and, and do recording. He was able to just talk to me, you know, casually and have me record him and that worked. So that was also a way to get narration. And then finally, I felt like I would be able to maybe use some of it, the actual interview with him in the hospital bed in the film, which, which you know, did happen. It was a very challenging project to finish because the director had passed away. There was a lot of money on the line. There were funders. You know, there were just a lot of people who didn't necessarily have confidence in us, the team, that we would be able to pull off the film. And we wow. did, but it wasn't easy. Basically, having worked with Marlon on Tongues Untied and then Affirmations and Anthem, and having spent months with him on Black is Black Ain, even though we didn't really get very far before he passed away, I felt I knew exactly what he wanted to do. The challenge that I had myself with the editing of the film is that it became clear that the film was kind of encyclopedic. You know, I'd had some feedback along those lines, but I had to just say, you know, hey, this is what he wants to say. He's going to say it. He wanted us to talk about this, 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 and this. So we're going to talk about this, 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 and this. And that's what happened. Marlon got what he wanted, and I served really on that film 
as his, I don't know what the word is. I wasn't his voice, but he'd entrusted me with this task and I had to honor his wishes. That's what I did. And that's ultimately the film that we ended up with is I think something he would have been proud of. I have to agree. It's not just cohesive with his other work and his worldview and on par in terms of quality, but it feels like a fusion of his different approaches from the kind of more essay style film like Ethnic Notions and Color Adjustment and also the personal biographical and the celebration of the communities that he was a part of. It really uh, spoke to me and I found it very moving. I'm glad to hear that. I would love his movies to be seen more because Marlon was gone, because the situation was complicated. It was a film that did very well. It circulated, it played a number of festivals, but after not too long was not getting seen maybe as much as it could have been if Marlon had still been around. And I'm not saying anything about the people who were working to distribute it. I mean, people were doing what they could. Oh, of course, yeah. Did a good job. But yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that Marlon's work, which was so groundbreaking and so important, you know, has been to a certain extent kind of forgotten. You know, you mentioned Bob Paris. Bob Paris teaches at Virginia Commonwealth University. He teaches all of Marlon's work every year. Wow. He's bringing his work to new generations of filmmakers. I know a number of other people who do that. At the same time, I've been at so many film events where, you know, you'll mention Marlon Riggs and no one will even know who he is. It was wonderful for me last year that the retrospective, which was largely organized by Vivian Kleiman, that that happened the 30 years after Tongues Untied. I think that was a really great way to kind of get Marlon's name out there again, looking at his work. And his work is so fresh. I mean, some of it, you know, obviously there's bits and pieces here and there, elements are sort of dated. But on the whole, the work is still really powerful and speaks, actually, it's almost too relevant you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. <laughs> we wish that maybe things had changed more than, unfortunately, than they have. Yeah. It's just great that that happened. And I think that is also, you know, brought some renewed interest to getting his work reconsidered. And it's really exciting. I mean, I hope more people have the opportunity to discover his work. Completely agreed. And also in terms of those things that are maybe of their time, there's also an acknowledgement in the text of the movie, I think Marlon himself says it, that these things keep on moving and there are going to mm. be essentially new chapters that you could include. Mm -hmm. But the spirit of it and the information in it and Marlon's voice are still so resonant in 2020. And I think they will be for a long time. And I'm really glad that they're being rediscovered in some way. I hope that continues. I'm going to <laughs> do my best to, to push <laughs> Great. that. Yeah, speaking of that, last year at the screening, I met a woman who actually works in public health with AIDS patients. Hmm. She was telling me that she uses the film all the time to wow. sort of do outreach in sort of marginalized Black gay communities. She said the film is just a great outreach tool. Like she uses it in all of her work. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. I hadn't really thought about that, you know, that the film could be used in, in these totally different settings and still be really powerful. That was a wonderful thing to hear. It's just such a tangible way to use the film for good. Mm -hmm. After completing Black is Black Ain't, you, you left the country and you've had a very accomplished career as a documentarian and journalist and editor. 
You've worked with directors like Jean-Marie Tenot and Idrisu Morak-Pai, and you've directed your own work like Guangzhou Dream Factory. What's something from your time working with Riggs that you have taken with you into the rest of your career? I would say in terms of my work with Marlon, I haven't really been able to take as much of it into my career as I would like to. I mean, I feel when I'm editing with other filmmakers, I love editing. I love working with directors, whatever style they're working in to try to bring out the best, to try to make the best possible film, to challenge them, to work with them, to try to create something new and interesting. A lot of the films that I've edited stylistically are very different than Marlon's work, different types of filmmaking, all wonderful, but different. And then in my own work, that I've had funded because I've been working on a film for a television slot that sort of has a certain style that it has to adhere to. I've had a great time and I've made films that I'm happy with, but I haven't had that kind of pleasure of just playing with images and Mm. bringing in all kinds of elements. And I'm always having the back of my mind, you know, one day I'm going to be able to work on a film of my own where I'm going to be able to have that same creative freedom that I had working with Marlon. One of the things that really draws me to his movies, you say he's a great writer. He has such specific word choice. Mm-hmm. I just have to imagine some moments where he was fixating on a certain word or like trying to find the right word. Were there any sort of moments in working with him that you saw that happen? What sort of his process around word choice as he's writing, if you had a peek into that? Marlon enjoyed writing. I mean, writing was a kind of music for him. Mm. You know, like I said, he loved poetry. He wasn't a poet, but he loved reading poetry. The cadence, the rhythm, the tonality of a lot of the poetry that he enjoyed. He applied that to his own writing. So I think when he was writing, you know, he was always, he loved finding the perfect word. The meaning of the word was perfect. He also liked Mm. to play with the word, how the word sounded. Could he rhyme with it? Could he use it rhythmically? He definitely loved words, he loved writing. Just branching off of that, one of his most distinctive stylistic signifiers to me is the way that voices can collage together and overlap saying different things and then coming together in unison and breaking apart again. He just had an ear for the way that voices can go together. Did you see that technique form in the process of making Tongues Untied? How did he sort of come upon that way of overlapping voices? We did some of it in the editing, Tongues Untied. But I also think Marlon, you know, picked up on things, too, that he'd seen in performance. When he went to listen to spoken word or theater, you know, like I said, he was a sponge. So hmm. if, he, if he was at some performance and people were doing things a certain way, it was like, oh, that's something I can do, you know? I can bring these people in and we can have a chorus of voices. And he just enjoyed trying things. He was open to trying all sorts of things. I think that that's one of the great qualities of his work is that there's room for kind of everything under the sun. Two sequences that are coming to mind that I wanted to ask you about. One in Tongues Untied, the Institute of Snapthology section, mm. and in Black is Black Ain't, the section where Marlon is in his hospital bed and he's singing different genres of music or sort of comical riffs on different genres of music. They're both very funny sequences while still being kind-hearted and loving and reflecting something that he authentically feels or is a part of. 
I'm guessing that the the musical genre section from Black is Black Paint came about in that three-hour interview that you had with him. I'm guessing that that was something that Marlon didn't plan on being a part of the film. Yeah, he wanted to talk about music, but we hadn't really filmed anything. So in the hospital, I just started asking him questions and he... Yeah, come on, just, you know, sing. What? And we just started <laughs> fooling around and, and he just took off and it was great. You know, he did this wonderful performance that ended up being perfect for the film. When I first watched it, I wondered, oh, can I use this? Does it seem like he's in this hospital bed and he's not well and maybe this is going to look like somehow, you know, exploiting his illness? But no, I watched it and it's like, no, no, no. He's having fun. This is joyous. He's, you know, he's having a great time. But also, I wanted to not just get across the music, but also get across the idea that even in this terrible illness that he was going through, you know, he was still having these moments of joy. And I felt like I could share that with the viewer. That was just improvised on the spot. Um, the section in Tongues and Tie, which was actually a section I didn't work on, that was something that was much more planned in advance. I think that's a section where you had a drawing. One of yes, they're the drawings. comic images by right. the comic you Exactly. He'd been talking to Rupert. He had the images. He knew he wanted to use the rhythm. And, you know, that was something that got put together, but it was much more planned out. But I think they both have that same kind of energy. They speak to each other in that way. Yeah, I mean, because that's just Marlon. One of the last things would be, do you have a go-to anecdote or experience that is meaningful to you from your time working with Marlon? Something that you think speaks to his character or just a fond memory that you have of him? It's actually really hard for me to think of just a fond memory because there's so many. What can I say? I don't really have an anecdote or a specific moment. When I think of him, I just feel so grateful to have been able to spend time with this person who just loved life, loved people, was so open, was so curious, smart, sharp, fearless. You know, he's just a wonderful person. What can I say? And then, you know, totally serious, everything. He's got his serious side, but he was also just someone who was so much fun. We go out to dinner, we'd have a great time laughing. Well, when I did Anthem with him, for example, Anthem was great. I was the co-director and the art director of Anthem. I mean, Anthem was basically just a film where we had a poem and we just said, okay, what can we do? Let's just have fun. You know, and I had him dancing and we were filming everything we felt like filming and we just had a blast. It was just so much fun. And that's just my real takeaway from him is he was um, a wonderful human being. Maybe that's the perfect way to sum him up. Mm. All right. Well, Thank you so, so much. I'm really honored that you took the time to talk with me and that you responded to my email in the first place. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. I mean, I'm so happy, like I said, when I responded to you, that young people are discovering Marlon's work and loving it and wanting to talk about it. It's wonderful for me, and I'm happy to, as much as I can remember, <laughs> share my memories no, and help oh my get God. the word that out. I really am coming away with an expanded understanding of Black is Blacking in particular. Mm -hmm. Even if he didn't complete it himself, it feels of a piece with his ethos that you as his close friend and collaborator got to finish that work and make it as an important a part of his filmography as, as all the rest of his movies. It's a really special movie. 
Thank you. It was an honor to work on it. It was difficult, but it was an honor. You know, it's something that, interestingly enough, you know, in terms of my own work, I rarely talk about Marlon. I mean, it just doesn't come up that much. It's just what happens when you work for someone who's gone and they've yeah. been gone for so long. Anyway, it was great to have this chance to talk to you too. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Deep Cut. Massive, massive thank you to Christian Badgley for taking the time to speak with me. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to your podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. <laughs>